Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels, a special episode called Industry Insiders. We're taking a a little break um, from the traditional record label interviews and featuring some guests that um, are experts uh, in a certain area. And, And the first episode that we're doing is I'm really excited about. We're talking with author David Sachs of the book, The Revenge of Analog. And, you know, today we're going to be talking in this interview uh, that we recorded this summer, actually. Um, we're going to be talking about his book, but we're going to be talking about the, the idea of analog and what has made physical products and, and stuff like vinyl and and photography and, and what has made that popular again and, and, and how that impacts us as, as label owners and DIY musicians, what we can take from that and what we can learn from that. It's a fantastic book, and I really suggest um, you get a copy and read it. And I have suggested it to quite a few people, and they have read it. And uh, and I know, actually, that some of our listeners who have talked to me before who, who have checked out this book. Um, so make sure you do that. And David is a really, really smart individual, and I, I think you're really going to love this interview. I want to give a shout out to my good friend, Tim Foy in Toronto, uh, who, who runs the studio, the Nelson room. And he let us come out this summer and, uh, and camp out there and, um, record this interview. And I'm so glad he did. And I'm so glad that, uh, that, uh, David Sachs took the time to chat with me about his book and about the idea of analog and analog products and analog things and analog philosophies. I really hope you enjoy this interview. I loved your book. I loved it. It was so great. And I, I feel a little bad. I was came to it a bit late because this is, I guess it's been out since what, 2016 or so? Day of Trump's election. Really? Best timing of a book release. Oh, man. <laughs> that reminds me, uh, like uh, September 11th, 2001 was a Tuesday. So it was like album release day. So anybody who released a record on that day basically yeah. had to have another re-release in the spring or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, what's interesting is the, uh, you know, looking back on that now, like a lot of the issues around the election and all that, like it, there is this thematic sort of growing distrust of digital that sort of feeds into it in the bigger picture. True. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, we're talking with David Sachs, who's a Canadian journalist who's written for publications such as New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and GQ. I hope that's all true. I pulled that from Wikipedia. At one point in time, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and he's the author of the book we're talking about today, The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. Before I let you talk, I want to, I want to tell you two anecdotes about this book that um, were, are special and, and will kind of start things off first time i actually or sorry the second time i saw your book and the the time that i actually decided to pick it up was i was in this independent bookshop in hamilton on lock street called epic books and it was a small closet size independent bookstore and i it was a saturday morning and i was i was with my daughter who's six and we we went into the shop and right when i stepped stepped foot into the store i stopped and i said to her do you smell that and she said, she took a deep breath and she's, I said, do you know what that is? And she's like, books? <laughs> and it was like, it was this really sweet moment on a Saturday morning of just, that's where I like to go on, on a Saturday morning with, with my daughter and this small little bookstore. And that's where we picked up your book. And I thought, and I had no idea that's where I would get your book. And then as I'm reading it, I thought, I remembered back to that moment of, uh, of how that kind of connected to your book. The first time I saw your book was in Indigo. 
And for our American listeners or our, our non-Canadian listeners, Indigo is a, a large chain like Barnes & Noble, um, bookstore chain that doesn't really sell books anymore. But It smells like scented candles. Yeah, exactly. It smells like vanilla flavoring. Mostly mostly and scarves money. and books. And, yeah. yeah, and debt. And debt. <laughs> so anyway, we'll go in there and there's this section, um, and I think it was around Father's Day, and there is just this kitschy opportunistic section and i see this book the revenge of analog and because i do studio tours and i'm interested in in vinyl and i thought this would be really up my alley but i dismissed it right off the bat because it was next to this book where it was like records and whiskey and it was like a coffee table book that you're supposed to buy your dad on father's day it's like what great classic albums and what alcoholic beverage to to pair with it and then next to it was your book on display. And so I originally just kind of dismissed this book as like a kitschy way to, to capitalize on, on a trend because you see that a lot. Um, and in fact, most articles on the resurgence of vinyl or analog were, have been written tongue in cheek and have this like patronizing tone to them. Look at what the hipsters are up to exactly, now. Exactly, exactly. So what the, the first question I was so interested to ask you is, why was your approach as a journalist so different? It seems like you took this topic more seriously than some of the other pithy blog articles I've read in the past. Well, if only I'd written a pithy blog book about <laughs> what, uh, what rare reissues, what numero reissues you could pair with what classic cocktail. Yes, yeah, that's um, true. Perhaps I would have done better. <laughs> you know what? This is something, this is a book that I have been working on either in my mind or trying to write or writing book proposals about for over a decade. Really? I mean, I, it first sort of started... For me, when I was working on my first book, so back in 2007, um, and kind of right when I had like digitized all my CDs into iTunes <laughs> and then really almost instantaneously stopped listening to music. And very shortly after that, my roommate's parents gave us their turntable and their records. Okay. And it wasn't like this amazing record collection. It was like... As I always say when I give a talk, it was like the ultimate Jewish suburban record collection. It was like 90% Streisand and Neil Diamond with like Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass, you know, the whipped cream dreams thing and, and Graceland. Right. But, you know, the, all of a sudden we were listening to the records more and people would come over and they'd be fascinated by them. And, you know, 2007, as you know, is like the first year when records go from their absolute low point in 2006 in terms of sales and interest in the industry to start growing again. Like mm -hmm. this phenomenon just starts at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think by the time I actually got the publisher to agree and got a book deal and started actually working on it, like I'd be, I'd really become obsessed with this in a way that, you know, I saw as something bigger than just the fun. And, and I think that, you know, the vinyl and <clears throat> film, you know, th those really make up the first part of the book because that is the way that most people see it visibly, mm -hmm, right? right? Hey, what's with all these record stores coming back? Oh, oh, oh I see a bookstore again. But, you know, it, there's a much, the, the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it, the more I saw this is a much deeper issue about our economy, the values we have in a society. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely went overboard with it. <laughs> It's so good. Why the word revenge as opposed to resurgence or renewal? Why such an aggressive word? 
Ah, it sells books. Um, it, uh, <laughs> I kind of thought that. <laughs> you know, I think I, I think my original title was something, you know, the the analog way or something, and the publisher's like, we, we, we're going to call it Revenge of Analog. And I was like, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think the reason why it works is because, you know, analog, whether it's goods or the way of doing things or ideas, is really something that over the past decades has been – dismissed as increasingly irrelevant and um, of decreasing value, right? And what I'm arguing is like, no, the, the actual, the value of this is changing and is growing in a different way. And so when something that's been beaten down and pushed aside and sort of dismissed, all of a sudden comes growing back against everybody's expectations, mm. that's revenge, right. right? It's not a revenge of you know, this is going to then kill off the computer and we're going to go back to using all these old tools as the only option. But, you know, when when you when you look at the naysayers, like record stores can never, no one's going to buy records again. You can't yeah. open up a, a record press again. Yeah. You can't open a, um, you can't make a company that makes record pressing machines again, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's like, well, actually look at the numbers that these guys are doing. They made more money than Spotify did last quarter. Right, um, right. I think it was like Spotify lost twice what you know the u.s record industry did in terms of revenue oh last my goodness. quarter yeah who knows what's going on there it's interesting that you're you talked about i want to grab the book here but you talked about the um the visual you know what was most obvious to people it's very astute of you because we're talking 2007 when when the seed was planted in your brain but there's still articles today in the USA Today or, or whatnot that are saying hey guess what vinyl's coming back yeah so people are still just kind of writing articles and figuring out, out about it. That was early for you. Yeah. The the book the the book is divided by and, and I don't want to I, I don't want to give too many spoilers because I do want people to read this book. Um, the the first part is the revenge of analog things. So vinyl, paper, film, uh, board games. The paper one was a surprise because when I picked up this book, I thought he's definitely going to write about vinyl. That that's the most that's the sexiest one. Um, and then I, you know, I figured film is going to play a role at some part. But the moleskin chapter was one of my most favorite chapters, and I, it, and uh, it didn't even dawn on me. I mean, I have probably twenty of them in various sizes at home, and uh, and that part really snuck on me, snuck up on me. Was there was there different things where you realized that, that uh, were you aware of most of these resurgence or were there some that snuck up on you? No, I, I think these are all things that in terms of that part of the book, the, you know, the, the things, I mean, it was, it was readily identifiable, right? And those were the things that I was starting to see back into, you know, in 2007 is when moleskin really had sort of grown into this desirable item that you were seeing all around North America. Um, and it had kind of become the de facto creative tool, whether you are a you know, in an artistic field or increasingly, you know, in the world of software and innovation. Like mm. you had your iPad, you had your laptop, you had your phone, and you had your Moleskine notebook. Right. And and I think the utility of that and the sort of the strength of that where, you know, listen, the the technology to supplant paper had you know, is is, is vastly more advanced than many of these other technologies. Mm. And yet it it you know it grew for all these different reasons, um, so you could sort of see you could see these things happening. Like mm -hmm. by the time I wrote the book, the trend and the growth was already apparent, mm. um, and then it was really just a matter of looking of of what was behind them, like what right. drove this and what continues to drive it. Well, the second second part of the book is was 
a real surprise was really exciting, and that's the revenge of analog ideas like print and retail and work. And um, it, it, the book is is laid out so well, and I think that's what just I plowed through it. Um, I've always thought, and, and we talked about this a little bit to Tim, our host, who I should give a shout out. We're in a gorgeous analog recording studio here in, in uh, the West End of Toronto called the Nelson Room. Um, live to tape. Live to tape, maybe. We are going through, I didn't ask him what we're going through, but I imagine we are going through some sort, we're definitely going through an analog preamp of some sort. I can't see where our meters are, but uh, the geeks would love this. Um, we were talking earlier and he stole a question of mine. I've always thought that nostalgia played a role in things, but your book doesn't give much credit to nostalgia at all. I, I think nostalgia definitely, there's an element of nostalgia there, right? Um, but I think it's too easily ascribed to it and too much weight is given to it. Um, nostalgia can get someone in the door. Okay. Nostalgia can be like, you know, peaking the interest again of, oh yeah, remember when records, remember Polaroids. Hmm. But, you know, you're not going to get an industry to grow, what is it, 18 times its sales <laughs> right. for in the case of records or, you know, on a consistent basis, like independent bookstores over a decade, huh. simply on the basis of nostalgia. And what I found in talking to all the different people who work in different businesses and industries that I talk about in the book that are, you know, making and selling and marketing uh, analog goods or ideas is that their driving market are those who are too young to have lived through the first wave of analog, Interesting. right? So it's the millennials, which is a giant term that means nothing. Um, <laughs> but let's say those in their, you know, young 30s and younger on down. Yeah. I mean, I have friends who's, you know, I, th I I think about this all the time. You know, two summers ago, we had friends up to our cottage and uh, their daughter, Abby, was turning nine. So we had a little, you know, birthday thing for her. And her parents got her the gift she really wanted. And it was a Fujifilm Instax camera, which is the Fujifilm instant film, you know, version of a Polaroid. Um, and she was just thrilled to get this thing, right? <laughs> and this is a kid uh. who her entire life has only known photography as something that happens on an iPhone or an iPad. Wow. That's it. That's her only frame of reference. Totally. Not even so digital cameras. No. <laughs> so she's not like, oh, I yearn for the days of Andy Warhol and, you know, the yeah. feeling and the smell of film. This is a totally new experience yeah. for her. And I said, Abby, why, why did you want this? Why do you like this? And she said, well, look, like you take a picture and the picture comes out and you can see it develop. Isn't that cool? And you get to put it on your wall or give it to your friend. Isn't yeah. that awesome? So they're coming to it in many ways on its own merits and they're judging it on its own merits. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that nostalgia can't do, right? Nostalgia is, is a feeling of, you know, a desire for something that, that was in the past and that's, that's great. And it can be a powerful thing and there's nothing wrong with it. It's right. not a negative force, right? right? Um, which I think in the world of, you know, the, the future-centric technology, oh, you're just being nostalgic. You know, g g get off your, your ass, let I move to the future, right? Well, it's like, well, hold on. Like, if I'm judging this on its merits and it works for me better, it either brings me more pleasure or it allows me to do something in a more productive or, you know, goal-oriented way, um, then I'm going to choose this because mm. it actually works better for me. That has nothing to do with nostalgia. Right. That's really interesting. The um, channeling into the concept of the paradox of choice was really fascinating to me. If I put on a record in iTunes, chances are I'm going to pick another one before the second song starts. If I put on vinyl, I leave it there until at least 
side A is done. What is it about analog that we actually enjoy doing things slower? Why are we all of a sudden appreciating the process more? Well, I think the process is in many ways everything, right? Okay. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, listen, the, the process of digital has tremendous advantages in that it's fast, it's instantaneous. We have limitless choice and limitless ability to change and edit and do things. And yet that process is very stressful in a lot of ways because you have limited choice, because you can sort of do everything. You're constantly stressing about what you can change, how it could be better, whether it's a playlist or when you're editing a document or something, um, or, you know, in the recording studio. Mm. Um, the, one of the interesting things that I that I experienced when I was in the book and I was in Nashville looking at the record pressing plants was I would go around to a couple of different analog recording studios and talk to the people there. And I said, you know, is this about... Um, is this about sound? And I remember there's this one guy, Chris Mara, who has this company called Welcome to 1979, because okay. nothing in there is, <laughs> like, none of the equipment is, yeah. you know, past 1979. It's really, like, amazing studio in Nashville, tape machines and actual, like, reverb echo chamber. Oh, right, and yeah. Super cool. And he's like, he's like, this doesn't have to do with sound quality. You can get great sound quality on a computer. I could give you fantastic sound quality. He goes, it's about the process. Mm. You know, if I if I sit someone down to record something and they know that when I press record on that tape, you know, whatever happens is going to happen and we can't go and just easily fix it later, go back and cut it out apart. You know, they're going to give that best performance and that process is going to be slowed down, but we're, we're going to sort of work with it. Right. Um, and I think that in many ways is liberating mm. for a lot of people. Uh, I, I remember I interviewed this gentleman whose name I'm now blanking on. I think it's Tony Scott, who's the recording engineer that, um, uh, you know, the first album he ever worked on as a 15-year-old was um, Hard Day's Night. Like he oh, okay. walked into EMI and they're like, push this button, kid. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, went on to do like all the Beatles albums mm -hmm. and, you know, Bowie and Duran Duran and so on. You know, Grammys up at up the wazoo. Yeah. And I remember him telling me a story about Bowie recording five years. Um, and you know, that part in the song where he's just like at the end, you know, going over the refrain five years over again, his voice is, you know, shattering and cracking. And he's like, Bowie had tears streaming down his face, but that was the process. Like that was it. We were recording, we did it. it his voice cracked, but that's what makes the song. He said, and now, you know, in the process can be constantly updated and changed. They would just edit that out hmm. and the song would be flat. It would be sort of different. Yeah. And so I think when you think about your own life, right? And, and how you consume things. Um, that slowness is, you know, you have to work with what you have, right? right? Like you pick up a newspaper or a magazine and paper, you're not going to be like, okay, flip, flip, flip. Oh, tag the ad, you know, flip, flip, flip. You're <laughs> going to start and you're going to go through and you might read something that you didn't know you'd like, or you'd think you'd be interested in, yeah. right? You might, you give things a chance and there's nothing else kind of competing for your attention. Hmm. Um, that's that's a luxury today. Yeah. And, and that's something that people are willing to pay for. You talk a little bit about the myth that technology equals progress. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, well, I think, you know, progress comes in, in many different forms, but... Um, Again, you know, what, when when you think about, um, I, I think we sort of equate newness with better. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. And that isn't 
always the case. Mm-hmm. You know, we're staring at a bunch of keyboards here in a music studio, yeah. and yet there's an old Fender Rhodes or yeah. something like that, yeah. right? The Fender Rhodes still sounds better than the greatest, newest Roland or Casio yeah, keyboard. Totally, totally. Um, you know, the, the best, uh, I, I don't know anything about musical instruments. <laughs> no, you're <laughs> doing well. The best Les Paul Gretsch <laughs> yeah, yeah. ukulele. That no, I'm it's singing. true. Well, I mean, that's, I think um, where we are right now is really a great metaphor for a lot of what we're talking about, or a great example, I should say. But, you know, the the Mini Moog is a, it's a reissue, but, it, you know, that's a iconic um, device from the '70s that they actually the the guy on top of the of the Wurlitzer, which is close to a Rhodes, but um, is there? There's a iPad version of it, right? But of course, like nothing like the real thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a there's a place that um, there's a bumper sticker at the house next to mine, uh, and it says "Drum machines have no soul." Um, <laughs> and it's true, right? You can make any beat on. You know, on a machine, and yep. and there are those electric drum kits, um, but they don't. You know, the, there's a reason why people seek out old sort of thrift store drum kits. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think when you take that back out into society in a broader sense, outside of the musical world, right? Or you could even talk about it in studios. You know, just because you can do something with technology, just because it's there and it's available, doesn't mean it's better. Mm. And you see this a lot in the world of education, which which I wrote about. You know, there's a chapter on that in the book where schools are sort of pressured to adopt the latest, greatest technology. We don't want the kids to fall behind. Um, Oh, we're going to put iPads in the classroom. (laughs) Everyone's going to have a wearable and, you know, oh, AI, the kids need to learn AI. Everyone needs to learn coding and and so on and so forth. But then it's like, then the data comes out and it shows actually this does nothing to improve learning, right? So like giving every kid a laptop actually worsens the way they learn. Yeah. uh, and, and they say stupid things like worsens. <laughs> but um, I was given a laptop as a child. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it, it, so much of that is based on this preconceived, I think, fear that we're going to fall behind on some sort of technology. That technology will overtake us. And so we mm. we feel like we have to catch up. We feel like we have to embrace it in this super enthusiastic way without often determining again for ourselves whether this makes what we're doing better whether it makes our lives more enjoyable or whether it it is a hindrance whether it actually makes things worse mm. uh, and i think that's very you know individualistic to how people are so in your studio i'm sure there's bands and groups of musicians that like for them it's better to go record in an analog way mm. and for others you know bring on the computers right right can the revenge of analog, this is sort of what we're talking about, only exist because we have the comfort of knowing that we have that stable, convenient option of digital? Yeah, of course. Because um, before it wasn't the revenge of analog, it was just the world was that it, we yeah. were in, right? Before the 1980s or whenever. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think the value of analog now is its value as it relates to digital. It, it is what digital isn't in, in you know positive and negative ways. Um, and so I think it's, it's complementary, hmm. right? It's, there's very few people that are, you know, sort of religiously fundamentalist about analog, um, uh, in a way that, that makes sense. It, it is, you know, people want, um, that mix, whether it's professionally or personally in their lives. So for me, like I tried to get into film cameras when I was doing the book, I bought a film camera when I was in Europe and, you know, took a bunch of rolls of film and like, eh, I don't know, yeah. just no, I don't have the talent for it and whatever. And like, I'm still taking 95% of the pictures on my iPhone, but, sure. um, you know, in, in the music world, like 
the, when I listen to music at home in my living room, it's on vinyl. I don't have an right. input into that stereo that's digital. But when I'm in the kitchen, like I have, you know, a Bluetooth, Bluetooth speaker yeah, there. Yeah, totally. know, when I'm in the car, I'm not like plugging in a cassette tape to yeah. through Bluetooth. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a great quote. Um, do you want to, are you okay? Do you want to take a break? Mm -hmm. I should let you know there's a bathroom over there as well. Mm. It's a okay. quaint little bathroom and think it's uh, like a, one of those composting ones. Oh, nice. Wow. That's gross. There's a great <laughs> quote in your book that says, we went far and fast off the deep end on digital and it felt like whiplash. Is the analog resurgence somewhat rooted in regret? Is it like us course correcting ourselves? I, I think in some ways. I mean, again, I think it's that, it's moving past, so, you know, there's stages of technological adoption and, and, um, and use, right? And that first stage is, is the, you know, this often driven by this fear of falling behind or fear of missing mm. out, this enthusiastic embrace. Wow, isn't this amazing? Look what all we can do with it. And then I think after a period of time when that wears away, you're, you're left with what actually you know, these two tech, different technologies do and what one does well and what the other one does well and what one doesn't do well and what the other one doesn't do well. And I think, you know, that, that whiplash or that return is in many ways sort of a reassessment of the value of that. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, obviously in the bigger context, you know, because with the smartphone, digital technology is now everywhere and it's with us all the time, there is that bigger element of, you know, reclaiming something for your own life, mm. reclaiming time, reclaiming space, reclaiming quiet, reclaiming freedom. And analog sort of gives you a tool to do that, right? So you were talking about putting on the record and for 22 and a half minutes, that's it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's buying 22 and a half minutes of, of sort of uninterrupted time. Right which in this world is That's like this point. tremendous luxury or picking up a book mm. and sitting in a hammock with it or, you know, reading a book on an airplane instead of playing, you know, Angry Birds or Words with Friends or something like that is, that is, you know, it's like a weekend for your brain um, <laughs> in a world of so many signals and, and, and noise. And so it is, there is that sort of reclamation. Your boss phoning you doesn't, interrupt their vinyl playing. That's what's kind right. of interesting. Yeah, it calls down the landline. <laughs> yeah. Bring! I, I, there's so many questions I have about the the research of this. And and as I'm reading, I was it sounded like it was a great adventure across the world. And I, and I, I think some of it I'll ask you off off uh, camera or whatever this is called. But um, <laughs> is I'm, this technology called? This, I'm curious about what analog things did not have revenge. I mean, you must have started following a little bit of a rabbit trail and then, and then. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny. Like, as I was doing the book, I was like, well, God, I mean, tapes, no one's going to go back to that. And then, of course, <laughs> as soon as the book came out, it's like cassette tape tales yes, are growing a thousand totally. percent a year. And now, you know, there's someone just opened a video store in Baltimore. And it's oh, like, geez. it, 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 um, it continues to sort of see this this kind of of growth um uh so are there other areas that haven't or not that i can think of off the top of my head mm. um uh you know there's probably some work pro like nobody's going back to like punch cards or you know paper spreadsheets right um but they still print a lot of things yeah um 
and, and there hasn't been any reversal. So people are like, oh, it's been two years since the book came out and three years since you actually wrote it. So, you know, are we now seeing the decline of these things? And no, like everything continues to still grow True. at the pace that it was. That could be because of the economy. So if there's another recession or something, mm. then maybe it'll all just go away. All the record stores will close mm. and, and whatever. But that's, you know, that's going to be a factor for every kind of business. Yeah, no, that's fair. We're a podcast that talks to independent record labels. So I do want to shift um, and and talk a little bit about music and the yeah. music side of things, although we have been. That was definitely my favorite parts of the book. In today's music industry, everything is digital. From when the recording is done, it becomes an MP3 and it's attached to a JPEG and then it's emailed and linked around the world. A hundred years ago, it was, it was more of a living room experience or at church or on Broadway. How do we as musicians and sellers of, of music bring back the analog experience to music and, and to, to make a living off it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the one thing that's remained unchanged is live music. Right. Um, which, you know, the, it's still the most powerful and emotional and effective and profitable part of the business <laughs> yeah. um, that is irreplaceable by whatever technology, recording technology and distribution technology has come around. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, look, the, the records that are selling the most are by the artists who are selling the most streams and anything anyway. So like- it's still Jack White and Taylor Swift and Jay-Z and, you know, right. whoever else is, is going to be having those sort of top sellers as well as like Dark Side of the Moon and- um, Yeah, all the classic, know, yeah. All the Sergeant classic Pepper. ones. But I think there is something to that. I mean, I remember talking to, you know, uh, a young band that I saw in Nashville when I was there researching, Promised Land Sounds. Great. Kind of sounds like the birds and, you know, uh, almonds. Really great. But- um you know, I, I remember asking them like, oh, you know, you guys have records. You know, I'm mm. like, yeah, here, here's our, you know, I bought the record. It's a great record. It's like, well, you know, why do you guys do this? Is it important? It's, is it the money? It's like, yeah, it's, it's the money, but it's like, we have something. It's like, hey, mom, look what I have, right? Yes. And it yes. lives on forever. Like when I think of the records that I have in my house, you know, some, I don't know how many hundred of fucking records I got, <laughs> you know, they're like, these th like some of these things have been were manufactured like the better part of a century ago, right? And have lived through the lives and like homes of multiple people, and they still endure. And of course, mm. some of them are the records that everybody has in their living room, um, but some of them are these obscure, random things that there's very small numbers of people that have, and that you know it endures. It has a life, like a book does on a bookshelf, totally. Uh, in that same sort of way, in the physical world. Um, and of course, yeah, for an artist, you could sell it once, you make your money off it once and the record company and the distributor and the label and the whoever's going to like rip you off for every <laughs> cent that they can, but it, you know, it's a living testament right. and that music never sort of, never sort of does. I, uh, a buddy of mine had a, a, a CD that he self-released when he was in high school. So maybe probably 20 years ago. And, um, I, I found it and I, went to put it in the CD player, but it was a burned CD from 20 years ago and it didn't play. Oh no. And that was just like one of those times where, you know, there's something from my childhood that I can't get anymore because, yeah. and who's to know like how many MP3s are, you know, are lost. And that's so interesting. Uh, talk to me about, shifting over t for a second, talk to me about the importance of analog and digital coexisting in a hybrid model. And I, I love the retail 
chapter. That was a great chapter. But for example, checking a store's inventory online before going in to buy the product or digital downloads uh, codes inside of vinyl records. Is this something that helps keep both the worlds alive or is it just a stopgap? No, I, I think it's the way we want to live in the world, right? We're still physical creatures in a physical world. Mm. And so we want and respond to physical things and interactions. We don't just get everything beamed into our brain. We don't just want to sit in front of a screen all day, mm. um, even the kids. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so we want that choice, but we want it where it makes sense for us. So again, you know, I want to be able to like sit in my living room and listen to records. But when I get in the car and drive somewhere, I want to be able to listen to music too. And maybe it's that same album mm. um, that I can get on Spotify because I pay 10 bucks a month and I can just have it. Yeah. But when I really love that album, I'll go out and buy it. Yes. Uh, and often I'll now, you know, preview it if it's a new release mm. and uh, and then go buy it if I decide I like it, right? And again, it's, it's, that, it's, it's that balance that works best for most people. And I find... What was interesting is again, it's sort of that thing in the in the professional setting, right? So in the studios, you know, some tracks you might record on tape, some tracks you might not use any digital filters, and other ones you do because that's the sound that you want. And there's artists who do one album that's like all analog and you know only to tape, no no extra <laughs> yeah. sort of cuts, no effects, yeah. like we're doing it the old way. And then their next album's like dance electronica, and that's great, like, right? Awesome. Use those things in that way. Um, you don't have to be sort of dogmatic. You know, not everyone has to be Jillian Welch. Right. <laughs> Do you, um, did you, was this fun project for you researching this? Oh God, yeah. 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 What was the, what was your, I, I'm trying to think of what like adventure, I wish this was a TV series to be honest, but um, maybe Netflix wasn't where it was at with these documentaries when One you day. started One it. Day. But um, you went to Nashville, you spent a long time in Nashville and, yeah. and, and or at least in the book, it, it, it hangs out there many a lot. Pages. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> many pages. Um, and then there was the, the film plants. Yes. We're, we're so, I was trying to picture it so much because it just felt like uh, something of Stranger yeah. Things. Yeah. But um, what was your favorite part? Well, that, that was the most fun for me personally. Um, as much, as cool as, you know, going to the record pressing mm -hmm. plant, going to these recording studios, going to a ton of record shops. Right. Um, Italy? Uh, you know, Italy. So there was this... You know, I was looking for, there, there's been a number of companies, a small number of companies that have revived the process of making photographic film in the world. <laughs> um, one of them is this company called Impossible Project, which then, which, you know, restarted the last mothballed and saved the last mothballed Polaroid factory and then ended up buying Polaroid's assets and now is Polaroid, like the company's called Polaroid. Wow. But there was this other one, which had started on Kickstarter and was these two Italian guys um, in the random sort of northern like countryside of Italy. Uh, it was called Ferragna and Ferragna was like the Kodak of Italy and it made all the film for all the Fellini films and all this photographic film. And it had closed down, you know, by the end of the, you know, early 2000, early 2000s, it was, it was sort of done. And these two guys having raised money on Kickstarter were going to take all of the machinery that was necessary from this factory that was going to be torn down and demolished. And we're talking a factory that's like the size of a New York City block, really? like seven stories and, you know- And it was abandoned? Like half a kilometer long. Yeah, it's empty. I mean, they, they, 
the company went bankrupt, but there's factories there. It's, and like you go inside in the dark because everything's in the dark because oh, it's a film factory. They're going with flashlights. And there's machines with like film going through them. And at one point they just turned it off, right? Wow. And like you could pull out boxes of film that are there. Wow. And these two guys, Marco and <laughs> Nicola, um, were like taking all of this and trying to replicate it inside the testing factory that was located next door in a smaller building, which wasn't completely shut down and had some of the smaller machines, but they needed to build other ones. And it was just like this insane project of like resurrecting. It was like, like I said, like it's like resurrecting a sunken ship from the sea floor and then getting it to sail again, you know? (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, it's like the roof was leaking and, and like there were no lights working and everything was like barrels of dangerous toxic chemicals everywhere. And they're like, we have one month to get this out into here or they're going to tear it down. But here's the thing. We can't get this out without tearing down this wall and he, they're shutting off the power. And it was like- And you were there for that experience with just, them? Yeah, like seeing what just a slice of, of this crazy thing that they'd done, all of which was- this hope to sort of build it back up, but you know, really this crazy project by these two guys who didn't have a lot of money and <laughs> just had this sort of passion and knowledge. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. And would it have been as good if it wasn't, in, you know, they weren't in Italy and they weren't Italian? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> it was Hamilton. <laughs> but it was the Hamilton of Italy. I assure you of that. It was, it, I mean, literally like there was one point where we're, when you go there, this is a this is not like Tuscany. This is like there is there was as you was driving up the hills to get there, there's like gondolas going over the highway at different points, like above. And and I'm like, what is that? And finally, as we're driving away from the factory one the the day after the other place where we're staying, we like come by this place which looks like it's out of Dickens. It's like a giant coal processing plant. And they literally are taking boxcars full of coal from the the coast, shipping them over the mountain to be processed. Like oh, it's it's wow. like it's like, you know, Ceausescu's Romania and how oh, it looks. Man. Um so yeah, not the They'll, sexy part of Italy, but it was Well, amazing. it was exciting. It was And I got my first roll of film from them uh last year. And the book, the chapter was was written as if there was like a, a a clock counting down and they realized they had one more piece of machinery that they wanted to get before the wrecking ball came through. Yeah. It was a very intense chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, and I was only there for like 24 hours, but it was just, you know, there was just so much going on and, and so many variables in this process. And yet even that process, like, vastly more complicated than manufacturing records. You know? Right, absolutely. Um, one of the most chemically intensive and complicated industrial processes of any manufactured product in their world. Like even that has been made, you know, justifiable and profitable in other ways. Yeah. So it it's- I think it's you had mentioned how there were, there were so few experts in these fields as well. The, 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 the people who knew the chemical- mixture for film or, and I've heard this to be the same about repairing the pressing plants, yeah. uh, the pressing machines um, for, for for vinyl. It, it's just that back then there was may, probably only one guy who knew how to make the repairs and one company that made the, the pieces that it needed. Yeah, not even. I mean, you know, near us here in Toronto, there's a company that started up uh, after I'd written the book called Viral Technologies and mm-hmm. they were 
one of two companies in the world to make a new record pressing machine because the companies that made them had gone into business in the 80s during the CD boom. Mm. Um, and you know nobody knew how to make these things. And the, the pieces were, people were buying machines in like, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo and like shipping them to the <laughs> yeah. UK because yeah. all of a sudden all these pressing plants were growing again and there was no more material for them to to use. Their industrial capacity was like so overtaxed. And so these guys, you know, made this new machine, but like it was the process of reverse engineering, wow. um, you know, a product that had been forgotten and sort of discarded. Mm. And and that knowledge is, what's interesting is like, it's coming back, it's being rediscovered. In many ways, it's being reinvented. Um, uh, and a lot of ways, thanks to being able to use digital technology. You know, mm. you, you now have things that you didn't have in the 1970s that can make it easier or more economical to sort of do these things. What has changed since you've read the book? Because, I mean, you're talking about the viral technologies. I've heard of that company. We know that vinyl is continuing to grow. Um, cassettes have, have happened and, and have had their they're moment. a great thing. I, that's nostalgia for me. Hey. I mean, that feeling, you can fit in your back pocket. And, yeah. Um, what what's happening with film? Have you been keeping up to speed with those guys? And I mean, again, I, I think it's continued to grow. There's more small niche companies producing film. Um, you know, Instax and Fujifilm and Polaroid are kind of growing their market. And it just, they're all kind of growing into what their niche is. At a certain point, you know, that growth will slow mm. um, because it's still, you know, it's still going to be niche and that's okay. Like right. it's okay to sort of be, to be a niche. Um, uh, and, and I think that's, you know, in many ways sort of where it belongs now. Right. The, it's, it's so ironic because a lot of these things have grown and been funded because through the internet. Yeah. As you talked about Kickstarter and, and a lot of these, um, the interest for this stuff has happened on, um, uh, message boards and whatnot. I find that to be really interesting. Yeah. It's allowed these disparate communities of, you know, analog geeks um, and enthusiasts to sort of find themselves and for people to be able to find the products and, and ideas and collaborations that mm. they want. Um, you know, the board game community, I mean, the board game industry has grown tremendously. And a lot of that has happened through you know a message board uh, called Board Game Geek, right? And uh, and then YouTube shows. Um, Will Wheaton from Star Trek, uh, you know, has has like this one million plus viewer board game <laughs> review show. Um, uh, you know that that's that's really interesting. That's like the good side of the internet. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was a huge surprise for me. That chapter too about the board games, and it was also something I'm so disconnected to. I didn't really know that that was going on. I was kind of aware of it, but when yeah. you talked about even the the Kickstarter side of things, I think you had mentioned something about like a, a certain percentage of Kickstarter campaigns are for board games, mm -hmm. or I, I can't remember. It was it's a, a huge category. shocking number. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a huge category. Um, and even they still can't fulfill their things. It's like, guys, just print a bunch of things on cardboard now. <laughs> Sweet scam. I don't, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I, as I was coming to the end of the book, and I, I really did, I absolutely love this book. Um, and it was it definitely top of the year for me, and I've recommended it to quite a few guys. Thank you. And I, um, and I know that all of our listeners will, will buy a copy. So um, that there's at least 10 more copies sold right there. <laughs> Tens of copies. Tens of copies. Um, the I'm a tenionaire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually feel good that I bought my copy from an independent bookstore because if I had ordered on Amazon like yeah, I did Tim's copy. Don't do that. I uh, I would have- uh, Have a soul. I would have felt bad as I was reading it. 
My takeaway, and I was uh, an incredible chapter, is the epilogue, uh, the Revenge of Summer. It's such a sweet and beautiful, and I, I tell people it's 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 not written like a nonfiction book. It's written by a human being, and it, and the book has a soul. I I think it was so well done. But my robot co-writer died. <laughs> From where update didn't work. It would be great if this book was just a bunch of algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> um, my takeaway from the book, and I want to ask you what your takeaway is, but I'll, I'll do mine first because it's my show. But this this book for my own life and the and the record label, bringing it back to the the labels we deal with and and the, the artists we work with. My takeaway was to look for ways to grow and promote my label in the analog world as opposed to the digital world. And that was something that really, and it's not really something necessarily that I felt you explicitly said, but it was something that just kind of um, poked me. And it was especially true in the epilogue of like, I always default to promoting my label and, and our, our projects on social and on Reddit and via email and tweets. It's, it's very easy to do that. And it's also very easy to feel productive by doing that, by sending a huge blast out. But I've started to think about how I can reach a larger audience by way of in-person meetings and shows, like you mentioned, and workshops, um, phone calls. Even this this meeting today was formed out of me coming out and meeting Tim a couple months ago, and then me, you know, texting him and saying, "Hey, can we we use your place?" And it didn't come from a Facebook ad. Um, and and I just that was my takeaway. And now, as I plan how to grow my business as an entrepreneur. I'm now looking at ways and say, instead of e-blasting these people or, or buying this list or doing this thing, it's who can I go have coffee with? What people can I get together in a room? And and so that was my takeaway. And I thank you for that. Well, yeah, I think that's, you know, th that's that universal lesson, right? Which is that, again, the world we live in is the analog world. Hmm. And, and, you know, digital technology can, can be powerful and, and easy and reach sort of a mass thing, but... You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, what matters in this world are the those real relationships, the mm -hmm. relationships you have with, you know, the people you love, your friends, um, uh, the art you make, right? That actual mm -hmm. relationship, and and um, and you know, the relationships that you have with with your fans, your customers, uh, and and the quality of relationship versus the quantity of relationship, mm -hmm. right? You know, the good point. The the you know again like the loyalty you're gonna get from someone that goes to one of your shows <laughs> and sees that band you know they and they enjoy themselves they will go back to that next concert in a way that you would have to hit thousands of people on all those mm. lists to maybe get someone to buy that ticket right um point. uh that's that ultimately is what matters and i think the other thing I say to people, you know, in companies too, especially digital companies that I talk to, like I do speaking a lot, mm. that's what pays the bills, <laughs> um, is, you know, like, yeah, send your emails, do your e-blast, do whatever you have to do. But like, remember at the end of the day, like there's a person there, right? And how are you going to reach that person in a way that actually matters to them? Right. The best way is still to, you know, do something in, in a way that makes them feel right. The, the best way to sell me a record is not to blast it or send me tracks online, but like if I walk into that record store and they're playing something cool, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> I'm going to buy whatever it is there. That's a good point. Besides the uh, getting the chance to visit the the Hamilton of Italy, what was your, <laughs> what was your uh, takeaway from this project? I think it's, it's, um, 
you know, the the value of of the real, the value of of real things and and real relationships and real people is is only getting stronger. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's something that we're taking for granted any longer. Mm. And um, and what I what I found interesting is that you know you asked what changed since the book came out. I mean, in the book, content wise, nothing dramatically. But what I found is that the conversation around it really has. You know, when it came out, when I was talking to people about it and writing it, it was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I kind of get it. And more and more, I hear people saying how this is something they think about all the time. Hmm. Um, you know, the the benevolence of digital technology has really faded. I, I think there's very few people who will look at, you know, companies like Google and Amazon and and let alone social media companies in a way that's benign. Hmm. Um, and and that's healthy. It's healthy to have that distrust, and it's healthy to sort of realize what is valuable to you and what tools, you know, allow you to sort of reach those values in, in your life. Mm. I feel so bad for dismissing this the way that it was presented at Indigo originally. And, and, but then- In a scented candle, literally <laughs> melted into a scented candle. <laughs> Gift ideas for dad. Um, there, pre- as a dad, I appreciate it. Well, that. you know what? Hey, listen, you were on an end cap and uh, yeah. I'm sure it was a great, it is, it makes a great Father's Day present. Um it's so interesting, though, because what you're talking you about, hear that, kids. Yes, that's right. Um, the the Apple announced in uh, this spring that part of the built into the new iOS will be these screen time limiters that right. you can set for yourself, not just for your kids, but people can actually put regulations on themselves to say, "Boot me off of Instagram after an hour a yeah. day or four hours a day." Um, and so I think that this this book it's a it's a deeper conversation it's not just these cute little headlines and sunday morning blogs that say tapes are coming back i think it goes a lot deeper yeah it's it's the why right um hmm. it's it's the why and uh and, and the why matters yeah absolutely thanks for doing this yeah really my pleasure it. thank you david Sachs has been a writer for the new yorker gq magazine the new york times and the globe and mail you can find out more about David on his Twitter at SaxDavid, and you can find his book, The Revenge of Analog, wherever you buy your books. Thank you for listening. Thank you for David for being on the show. If you're new to us, please subscribe to other record labels. We have new record label podcasts coming uh, later this year, uh, as well as into next year. And make sure you pick up a copy of his book. I think you're really going to like it.